up, Mr. Scott. Permission to come aboard, sir. Welcome to Now Playing's Star Trek Retrospective Series. We here at Now Playing will be reviewing all of the previous installments of the Star Trek movie franchise, going at warp speed towards the new J.J. Abrams Star Trek movie coming to theaters May 8, 2009. Bringing you the perspective of a Star Trek novice, a casual Star Trek movie fan, and a former hardcore Trekker, we will be providing spoiler-filled critiques of this long-running movie franchise. Today we're talking about Star Trek Generations, starring Patrick Stewart, Jonathan Frakes, Brent Spiner, Malcolm McDowell, and Whoopi Goldberg. Directed by David Carson. And William Shatner. (laughs) You left out Shatner. He's on the poster. (laughs) I did leave out Shatner. This is Brock, co-host of Now Playing. Stewart in L.A. This is Arnie. All right. And so how could I have possibly forgotten about (laughs) Captain Kirk? They won't let the audience. This is the first movie where the Next Generation cast comes to the theater and takes over the mantle of Star Trek movies. My first question is to Arnie. Was the Next Generation on television when this movie came out in the theaters? No. The series had ended a year or so before. Star Trek Deep Space Nine was on television. Voyager was getting close to premiering. However, this was made at approximately the same time, or pre-production on this was happening at the same time as the two-part series finale of The Next Generation. So there's a lot of crossover there. Before we get into this movie, though, because this is a TV series that, when completed, very quickly made the leap into movies. And yes, Star Trek did it, but there was a good 12-year gap in there. Overall, what is your guys' feeling of TV series that leap into movies like this? Sex and the City has done it. and files Mm-hmm. Twin Peaks. I- I'm not a big fan of it. I think that there's something to be said about crafting a story that's meant episodic on a week-by-week basis when you have to rethink that and apply the structure and techniques used to engage someone and satisfy someone in two hours, they oftentimes can't do that. I mean, X-Files being the most obvious in both movies and that it just felt like these feel like episodes and if I hadn't been watching, I wouldn't know what the hell is going on and I don't even think they're particularly good episodes. I mean, I think you're always in danger of trying to find how to make it fresh. The Simpsons movie. I love The Simpsons. Love The Simpsons. And I liked the movie, but I could not tell you why that needed to be in movie theaters. I agree with you on The Simpsons completely. I'm specifically referring to a TV show that quote-unquote graduates to cinema. Cast and story intact. Graduation maybe not as in canceled and moved on, but, you know, elevated. See, here's my feeling with it, and this is why I bring it up. If you've got a really good TV series, then... One of the common praises I'll hear is it's like a movie every week. People say that about Lost or Battlestar Galactica. It's like a movie every week. Well, I guess I just have higher expectations when I'm shelling out some money than when I'm just sitting down and watching commercial television. I want to see something more. And I think the original Trek movies avoid having to be measured by that bar because they'd been off the air for so long. But when you've got the next generation just less than two years off the air, I really feel like, you know, I come to these movies personally going, all right, impress me. I like the series, but why am I paying you now? Hmm. What are you giving me more? Mm -hmm. And say what you will about Star Trek The Motion Picture. Not only had enough time passed, but they got a movie director. They didn't get somebody who had been involved with the show. They got someone that probably knew nothing about the show, but was making a big grand movie like he would have, you know, West Side Story or The Haunting or Sound of Music. Bringing it back to Star Trek Generation, Generations, this felt like the people that had worked on the show were probably the same people writing and directing this movie. Am I wrong? I, I don't know who you made are, this movie. You are dead right. And here's what's funny is what I said earlier. They were making the two-hour series finale of the show and this at the same time. And without giving my own opinion, a lot of people felt that the two-hour series finale was a better film than this. Hmm, interesting. I had no idea who David Karsten was. So I was going to ask you if he was a show director. Was he like 
like the main show director? I actually did look it up, and he had done a lot of TV, and he had only done four Next Generation episodes. Maybe they were the best ones, or like six, but it wasn't like he was the guy. Right, I hear you. So, Arnie, do you want to go into a plot synopsis of Star Trek Generations? I will try. And I say I will try because this movie is littered with subplots and character plots and so much in trying to take a series that had been on the air for seven years with a large ensemble cast where everyone got their moment to shine and shove it all into two hours. They really put a lot in there. But I will summarize the main arc. Good. The movie opens, we're still in the 23rd century, and the Enterprise B, which, trivia note, is the only only Enterprise we had not seen to that point. The C was featured in an earlier episode of Star Trek The Next Generation and a time travel plot. The D is the primary ship of The Next Generation. No one had seen the B. So it is the big reveal of the B, and they pull Captain Kirk, Chekhov, and Scotty out of mothballs, both the actors and the characters, to come on for a bit of a press bit so they can give sound bites to the press as the Enterprise B, the first Enterprise without Kirk at the helm in in 30 years launches. Instead of Captain Kirk, they have Captain Cameron, Alan Ruck. <laughs> the Enterprise B is just on a little tour around the block when they get a distress call, and they should have known because it's the Enterprise, they're the only ship in range. <laughs> so they have to go to this two transports that are being destroyed by a space ribbon. That's what it's called. It doesn't have a bow, it's just a ribbon. And they beam some people off of the ships. They save 40 people, including Whoopi Goldberg and Malcolm McDowell, but the ribbon hits the Enterprise and Kirk must go down to engineering and fix something alone. It's all very vague, but Kirk dies. The hull gets pulled away from the Enterprise where Kirk is alone and Kirk is sucked out of the ship. Now we fast forward 78 years. We're with the crew of the Enterprise D and they are called for another distress call, this time at a space station that had been attacked by Romulans. Now, of course, on the Enterprise D, Whoopi Goldberg is the bartender Guinan. So we already have her on the ship. They get to the space station, and it had been attacked by Romulans. They find some survivors, including Malcolm McDowell, who we find out is named Tolian Soren. They bring the survivors from the attack back to the Enterprise. Soren insists on seeing Picard, saying he has to get back to the station. He gets back to the station where he launches a probe into the system's sun and is then beamed to safety before the sun explodes by a pair of Klingon sisters who also take Geordi LaForge captive. The Enterprise trying to figure out why Soren would destroy a sun, Picard talks to Guinan who tells Picard that this ribbon is actually a place called the Nexus. And in the Nexus, it's kind of like meth. You're really happy all the time. And once you've had the Nexus, all you'll do is anything to get back to the Nexus. And she had learned to live without the Nexus, but Soren's doing whatever he can to get back to the Nexus. Since ships can't survive in the Nexus like the Enterprise B couldn't, Soren is blowing up suns to create a gravity change that will route the Nexus to a planet where he wants to go so that the ribbon will hit that planet and he can go to the Nexus and be happy. However, the second sun he wants to destroy has a planet on it that has 300 million people. And so Picard must go and try to stop him. In orbit, the Klingons fight the Enterprise and returning Geordi with a hidden camera in his visor, because if you don't know, Geordi is blind and uses an optic visor to see. They fight out the frequency of the Enterprise's shields and succeed in destroying the Enterprise. The Enterprise destroys them in a last bit of retaliation. But on the planet, Picard fails to stop Soren from blowing up the sun. Everyone on the Enterprise is killed and Soren and Picard are taken into the Nexus. In the Nexus, Picard is very happy he has children. There's a subplot about how in the real world, his nephew had just died and his brother had just died. They are alive in the Nexus. Picard, who regrets never having a family of his own, has children in the Nexus. But he's got this nagging feeling that it's not real. Guinan appears in the Nexus because she'd been there once. She could be there now and forever and also be elsewhere and tells him that he can do whatever he wants in the Nexus. Picard decides he needs help to stop Soren. And so Guinan sends him to Captain Kirk who actually didn't die, but was taken into the Nexus, where for him, he's happy because he's with his old flame on a horse farm. Picard convinces Kirk to leave happiness behind and to come with him to stop Soren. They return to reality earlier in time than when Picard left, before Soren blew up the sun. And Grr. Kirk- Grr. 
And then together, Kirk and Picard do stop Soren from blowing up the sun. Soren is killed. Kirk is killed in a bridge collapse. But Picard lives and the Enterprise does crash because Picard didn't go back in time enough to save them. But there were very few casualties and they talk about how they'll get a new ship named Enterprise. Wow, that's quite a summary, and that's one of the big issues with this movie, is that it's a lot of plot. It's a lot, a lot of plot in this one. And I cut out so much, I tried to make that as short as I could. Yeah, and you did cut out a bunch of the main subplots, including the whole data subplot, which we'll get to in a few minutes, but that movie was just, this happens, then this happens, then this happens, and this happens. So... I guess we should start with the opening if we want to talk about Enterprise B real quick before we get into the next generation part. Why wasn't it Kirk, Spock, and McCoy? Because clearly when Chekhov was in sickbay, it could have been McCoy. Do we know why it wasn't Nimoy and DeForest Kelly there? Yes, we do. DeForest Kelly was ailing and couldn't get health insurance for the set. Leonard Nimoy had been a driving creative presence in 3 through 6 and didn't like the fact that he was being given a script and told, here are are your lines he wanted to change them they said no and so he said screw you oh man and Nimoy has been quoted in saying they gave Spock lines but they weren't Spock's lines you could have given them to any character and they would have worked and that's exactly what they did <laughs> done <laughs> Scotty you you have no pride why don't you come on board and say the Spock lines the line that I did feel was cut and pasted from Spock to Scotty is Captain is there something wrong with your chair I was just about to say the same thing because it really felt like god the only two they can get were these two second string I did a podcast for Master Replicas called Propaganda, which you can find, I believe, still at MasterReplicas.com. And I interviewed Walter Koenig, and he talks about how he didn't want to come back because they didn't give his character enough to do. And so I actually pursued that line of questioning with him, what did your character do? And it turned out that they'd promised him the moon and a subplot all his own, and then just scrapped it right before film. Wow. Promised the moon and given him moon trap. So the only other issue I have with that opening scene was obviously it was just to get Kirk in the Nexus, which is fine. That captain seemed pretty inept, but he's a captain of a starship. Don't you think he'd be a little more, I don't know, confident? I got the feeling he was a first-time captain, and, you know, everything was supposed to be installed next Tuesday. Which was fun. Yeah. Let me guess. Tuesday? I think I felt like they were trying to set it up that it was like a glamour thing. Nobody can captain a starship as good as Captain Kirk. So here when this photo op becomes a real crisis situation, everyone has to realize that, oh, we don't want this guy behind the wheel. We want Captain Kirk. I got to tell you. I don't want Captain Kirk. I don't want him in this movie. I felt like he was a literal weight just sinking every scene he was in. I felt like he was living in his own Priceline commercial eternally. And I really am disappointed that they felt like they had to bring back the old school people to ballast this thing. Because I like the Next Generation cast. I think they're pound per pound stronger as a team and individually as characters the last thing they needed was for this guy to come sauntering in and still insisting that he's relevant i thought it was really pandering that they set it up this way and i from the get-go i was irked earlier in this podcast i said what are you going to give me to pay and i feel like what they were giving me in this movie was kirk this is why i was paying was to see the ultimate fanboy matchup of kirk and picard the Mm -hmm. crossover extraordinaire now i want to add as a piece of trivia they've crossed over to the original series three times before in the original star trek the next generation episode the very first one deforest kelly appears as admiral mccoy they put some heavy duty old man makeup on him and he was touring the enterprise d wait a minute they put old man makeup on deforest kelly (laughs) all right (laughs) <laughs> well, keep in mind, this was just around the time of Star Trek Four. Uh-huh, when he was so fresh and vigorous. <laughs> <laughs> then, around the time of Star Trek Six, to help promote that movie, Leonard Nimoy reprised his role as Spock. And because Vulcans live a long, long time, Spock had a mission that intersected with the Enterprise, and Spock was on a two-parter of The Next Generation. So we'd seen Spock and Picard. And then Scotty got involved in a transporter accident where they fixed it by beaming him aboard the Enterprise after he'd been in stasis for 70-some years. And so Scotty had 
interacted with the Enterprise. So now we have Kirk. Yeah. And, and you know what? I'll grant in the movie that, you know, we reviewed Freddy versus Jason. Everyone wants to see Godzilla go at King Kong. There's something very satisfying, however base, about those kinds of matchups. And I'm ready for the debate because I have always been pro-Picard and anti-Kirk. And I feel like this movie makes the case definitively. I think it can go too far. There really is a comic out there, Star Trek versus X-Men. Whoa. <laughs> How does that one go? I haven't read it. I don't want to read it, but I'm just saying it can go too far. That's weird. Yeah, it's weird. Anyway, honestly, I see why they did it. I see why they had Kirk here. Is it the best plot? Is it the best way to get him in here? They found a way to get him in here. You know, they did. But as Arnie so astutely pointed out earlier, this did feel like a TV show plot. It kind of felt like a convention of one that you would see on the show. And all those other subplots that you did mention also that we didn't talk about yet, those also felt like right out of the TV show. Well, many of them were right out of the TV show. First of all, you've got the Klingon girls. Now, when I was seeing this movie in theaters, I'd watch The Next Generation to the end, and I was still trying to remember exactly who they were and where they fit in. They were a loose thread from the series. Data's emotion chip was something that had been brought up time and again throughout the series. However, there is a flub because the last time we'd seen the emotion chip, it was irrevocably damaged, but yet here it's perfectly fine. The fact that that emotion chip was there was a holdover from the series. And so much of this is just a continuation of the series down to the sets. I'm going to go a little bit different on this one. This movie, the whole premise and setup felt almost identical to Star Trek The Motion Picture. Instead of V'ger the space cloud, you have Nexus the space ribbon. And instead of Spock trying to find out whether he should be emotional or not, you have Data with the chip learning how to cry. I felt like there was a lot of similarities, including the sort of loopy plot threads hanging all over everything, to both movies. But the difference between them is Robert Wise tried to make a big theatrical event, and whoever this director was just made another episode of the show. I think that... Any comparison against the first movie is needlessly harsh. While I can see, yeah, V'ger and the Space Ribbon both traveled through space and there is an emotion thing there as well, I think you're reaching. There's so much that didn't happen. The first movie adds needless characters just for the sake of having them die. This movie just continues the characters from the series. The first movie has no villain. This movie has Soren, who is brilliantly played, I might add, by one of my favorite actors. Malcolm McDowell. Malcolm McDowell. McDowell. Gotta I, love Malcolm McDowell. He elevates yeah, he's everything he's in. Always. He's so good. And I, I don't want to name drop here, but I actually got an opportunity to meet him. And what a charming, charismatic guy. That guy has got more wattage of personality. It's something about his eyes, something about his intensity. It can seem boyish. It can seem threatening. It can seem intelligent. He can shape it in so many different ways. And I thought, what a great choice for the villain can't say I liked the character very much. It felt a little too cyborg for me, if you go back to part five. It felt like instead of a nasty con-like villain getting revenge, it was more like a crackpot who had this crazy idea that was never going to work. Well, it it did work, and I felt he was more, although not as slick as, he was more Bond villain than Cybok. I thought he had this master plan. Who cares how many people die? I want to do this master plan for my own reasons. I would Ooh. disagree with both of you, because I don't feel like he was exactly villainous enough. He was just amoral to the extreme. He's like the guy who will hold up his parents at gunpoint to get another hit of the drug. He's not truly a villain. Like, every Bond villain usually is a villainous villain, a mwahaha villain. I agree that McDowell is wonderful in the role, but the character itself, yeah, I mean, yes, he's going to kill 300 million people, but he doesn't care that they're there. It's irrelevant to him. He just wants his next hit. And that's the Bond part. That's a very Bond kind of attitude. But you're right. He's not a muhuhaha, petting my cat kind of villain. No. I, I liked him in the role, too. I thought it was great. I loved his gun. His gun rocked. What a cool little gun that was. It looked like a science tool. It really did. I, I, it looked like something I'd use to hang pictures level. <laughs> yes, it's a laser, a laser level. So I need clarification on this. The whole first part of the movie is them on this boat to give promotion to Worf in the holodeck. I don't like the holodeck. I'm not a fan of the holodeck. I think it's a convenient plot device to give themselves a chance to do all this stuff without actually time traveling all the time. Why did they have the uniforms on their persons when they left the holodeck 
Because the holodeck doesn't give you clothes. You have to dress up. Seriously? It's always been that way. You always have to go down to wardrobe. I didn't know that. Yep. They're always walking down the hall in Sherlock Holmes outfits or what have you. The second part about suits. Throughout this movie, I've noticed that there were two different distinct uniforms. They were the traditional ones I remember from the TV show. And then halfway through the movie, Riker and I think Data and even Picard wore the ones with the v-neck with the collar with the different like the purple shirt underneath are those like casual uniforms and dress uniforms or are those uniforms brand new to this movie and why did they interchange them so much well they're from deep space nine which had started a couple of years earlier deep space nine being a space station got its own uniforms and why did they bring them here i don't know the bigger question is why did they feel they had to change the insignia on all of their chests why did they have to go from the ovoid symbol behind the starfleet logo as their communicator to some weird trapezoid some Somebody got it in their head that they wanted to change it, and so they did. And I really hate that. And we can maybe even guess here, a lot of this probably came to light because Roddenberry's was no longer holding sway. All these art directors or whatever that always had these ideas that had been put down, now we're like, aha, I can slip this one in. I got one for you too. Toys. Stuff. Yeah. I understand that. I can't believe that they would actually do it specifically for that reason. Hey, I I get it. It's like they're at the movies. You don't wear what's in your closet to go to the Academy Awards. You gotta put on a little something extra here. I mean, this is not just something that comes to you on the TV. So I liked the production values of this movie. I felt like it was the best looking Trek movie since the first one. It had a good look. Or maybe the second one. After I felt like they had been, you know, recycling things and re-sewing and expanding the waistlines on these, uh, you know, old generation costumes, it felt good to get in there and see some new stuff. But they literally took outfits out of Deep Space Nine's closet. I forget who was wearing whose outfit, but like, I think it's Jordy is wearing somebody's outfit that's way too big for him. And it's literally another actor's outfit off Deep Space Nine. As someone that has never seen Deep Space Nine, I had no knowledge of that. As someone that has watched six other movies... It felt new to me. But you said that it looked good. There's something I want to talk about that really didn't work for me. Now, I want to preface this. Out of the whole series we're watching here, this is the only one I got to watch in high def because it just so happened HBO was showing it in high def around the time I needed to watch it. And they're not out on Blu-ray yet. But my God, did Data's makeup look awful. Yep. It looked really caked on and my wife cracked up laughing every time Data was on the screen because you could just see every speck of bass. She's like, this is what happens when teenage girls put on too much bass. <laughs> I mean, he looked like my mother. It was bad, bad makeup. Why give Data the emotion chip in this movie? It was not integral to this plot. It was a complete subplot, complete tangent. The only time it ever even comes into play is when he could not save Geordi from getting captured by the Klingons, which led to the Klingons destroying the Enterprise on the planet, which I will get to in a minute. You put a connection there I'd never noticed before. Because Data single-mindedly decides to change his own programming by adding emotions, the Enterprise blows up. Oh yeah, it's completely linked. Because, well, I'll talk about it now then. Screw it. They capture Geordi, they put the camera in there, they figure out the shield thing, they blow up the Enterprise, and I'm watching this movie, and they're destroying the Enterprise, and it's a kind of interesting action scene, I guess. I'm sitting there watching this and saying, why on earth are they destroying the Enterprise for? First, I'm going to start with your first question, which is why give Data the emotion chip now? I cannot find any proof of this, but I can tell you what I've heard. I can tell you what I know, and I can tell you what I've heard. What I know is Brent Spiner is the second tier of Trek celebrity. When dealing with conventions, this is from Will Wheaton's own blog, the tiers of how much you have to pay and how hard you have to work to get them there, top tier is anyone with the rank of captain. Patrick Stewart or Avery Brooks, yeah, any of them, they are the top level. The second level is data. The <laughs> third level is the first officers, and then everybody else is clumped beneath them. He's that popular. He is. And what I've heard is he's like, I'm tired of playing this same non-emotive thing for seven years. You want me in the movie, give me the emotion. Give me my scenes. No kidding. 
It was a pretty good idea, I think, to give him some variance. Uh, I felt some scenes worked better than others. Him singing the little life form song, I smiled. Him <laughs> telling that... Hit that joke again and again and laughing. I was like, you know what? You're kind of turning into Jack Nicholson's Joker. I'm, I've had enough of you. I have always hated the life form song, period. The drinking was funny. Yes. I hate this. That was funny. It was. It became too much for me is what it was. I liked the I hate this. I liked the character moments. Keep in mind, I watched these characters for the seven years. I was their audience. So when he got the emotion chip, I was there with him. But, you know, when he was overloading, I'm like, shut him up. You know what he was? He was the Jar Jar for some of these scenes. Mm -hmm. I agree. When he overloaded, it really was too much for me, too. But... I think when that scene finished and he had overloaded, it made sense. But to get there was a painful thing. Yes, and then it's such a iffy thing. He overloaded. Well, he quickly unoverloads himself, and, you know, it, it doesn't work for me. And the plot, I like some of it, and I don't like other parts of it. And overall, it just felt like it didn't need to be in this movie. A lot of things didn't need to be in this movie, including right. Worf's promotion. I mean, these are they're trying to give everyone their character moments. Data being that high up got much more of them than anyone else mm -hmm. so what is the thing with the enterprise i'm thinking they wanted to destroy the enterprise from the set so they could build a brand new set for the movie is that the correct answer it is it just didn't look good enough for the high resolution and the widescreen format it was built for a square format they had to modify it some just to get it through this movie and then they had fun blowing the out of it and I got to say, I had no idea that the saucer could detach. That was cool. I was with it. Yeah, I thought that was pretty cool, too. But it seemed to me, as I figured it out as I was watching the movie, this has to be the reason they're destroying the ship, because I felt it was so unneeded. When Malcolm McDowell succeeds in his plot and they all die, I'm like, oh, I see. So it's supposed to add a little more weight to this, but it still felt kind of empty. This is, again, I think one of the first times I've seen this movie since theaters. I haven't seen it in at least 10 years. But my memory was, and I watched it again, and it's it's true. I see it again. When that dish is crashing into the planet, it really looks like it's crashing into the world's best model railroad set. You're absolutely right. It looked just like that fake moss that you'd use for grass in a model train and the fake trees. And I said about, does that look like a model train set to you? She's like, yep. Yep. I said the same thing to my wife. I said, honey, look, they're crashing into the model. <laughs> Other than that, though, I didn't know the things I know now about sets being designed for movies and things. And I thought when I saw this movie originally... They destroyed the ship again to get my money. They want me to come back and see the next ship. I'd seen this ship for seven years. They want to give me the death of this ship as what I'm paying for this time. And next time I'm paying to see the new ship. Mm. And in a way, it kind of works because it at least differentiates all the other Next Generation movies from the series. Any that feel as closely tied to the series is this one. And that's because it's the same ship. And a couple of the shots that are in this movie, I really think when they're just the ship flying, especially when Picard's doing his captain's log, I think they actually just used a shot that they use again and again in the series. Can we talk about Whoopi Goldberg? I need to talk about Whoopi Goldberg because I watched a season and a half of Next Generation before I stopped. And her coming on was about when I bowed out. It's weird, right? It was weird then. It's weird now. I would just want you guys to know, I broke a cardinal rule here. I never see a movie with Whoopi Goldberg in it because <laughs> I know that movie is going to hurt my brain. <laughs> whoa, whoa, whoa. You have a rule that you don't watch Whoopi Goldberg movies? A serious rule? I can name 30 of them. I would rather eat lead and watch. Sister Act is entertaining. I wouldn't go near it. Well, I'm not saying it's a great movie. I'm saying it's entertaining to watch. Let me put it this way. I'd rather see that one than Theodore Rex, in which she's a cop in the future, partner with a dinosaur. Fair enough. But I saw Sister Act with my mom, and there you go. It's a, it's a mom movie. But I hear your point. Your mom isn't reviewing the films with us. <laughs> and, and thank goodness for that. Um, although we all know she loves Star Trek IV. Whoopi Goldberg being on The Next Generation is admittedly strange, but not as strange as it may look to you now. Back then, it seemed pretty normal. She was probably having trouble finding a job. It's like having a major motion picture actor now serving you drinks 
That's weird. Well, the reason she was there is because she's friends in real life with Nichelle Nichols, who played Uhura, and Whoopi heard that there was a new series, and she told Nichelle, I want on that because when I was growing up, Nichelle was a big influence for me because she was a strong black woman in space, and you just didn't see black women on television much at all, let alone in space, you know, holding their own. And Roddenberry let her on and said, we have this role for a bartender. Do you want to do it? And in Whoopi Goldberg's ultimate defense, she did admirably because she didn't bring the Whoopi. She's not the manic stand-up comic Whoopi that is in every other one of Whoopi Goldberg's performances. Except the color purple. I haven't seen that. My attacks here are not on Whoopi Goldberg um, per se. I think that The Color Purple is a fine film. I think she is a likable film presence, but they never know what to do with her. And I would say this is a continuation of that existential crisis. Giving her a Smurf hat and telling her to pour drinks (laughs) is not using her best talents wisely. I mean, she didn't bring the Whoopi. She didn't do anything. It was one step above a walk-on. Well, here's what happened though season two is when she started and she was doing it episode after episode she was a regular she wasn't in the opening credits but she was there a lot and then she won an oscar right that's why i feel like she now has a role in this movie whereas they might never have even written her into the movie but now that she's an academy award winning actress she's on par with shatner and picard and so now you you have this really won an oscar? well no i just mean on uh, on marquee value so then they have to write this whole complicated backstory that she had been in the Nexus, but somehow had learned to deal with it. Why? That, did that make sense to you? Malcolm McDowell is crazy and willing to blow up moons and worlds to get back there. And Whoopi Goldberg can slam down a shot and be like, eh, I'm here. Well, Whoopi Goldberg's character, first of all, is exceptionally old. She's hundreds of years old. We don't really know what race she is. She's not human. We don't really know how old she is. She has this very enigmatic, hidden backstory that is never revealed. And so if anyone could pull it off, it's Whoopi. I mean, there's so many times where they just need a character to know things that are unknowable. And that's the exact role she played here. It it is consistent with the character, however much you may not like the character. Yeah, but they already had a character that could feel things. Troy, who's not even in this movie barely. I'm like, I feel like they already had empathic characters. I guess all I'm really saying is I feel like they had to make this minor, minor, minor character have this major part. And that didn't work for me at all. The whole idea that she had been to the Nexus, but wasn't a tortured person, and in some way still lives in the Nexus to talk to Picard after he's been sucked up in there, that just, like, they knew they had to do it, because if you stick your Oscar-winning actress in the background of a bar shot, you are not going to make her or fans very happy. Well, not only that, this is the time they're asking us to pay for this TV show in the movie theater. Having your Oscar winner actress in your back pocket, you're going to pull her out because it's the movies. And she's yeah. and that's exactly why she's here. More than anything else, I think Arnie hit the nail on the head with that premise earlier. The whole thing with her character still being in the Nexus, although not really there, I didn't buy that at all. Because I also didn't buy how they got out of the Nexus. Let's talk about this Nexus. So the Nexus is the happiest place on Earth. It's freaking Disneyland, okay? What I don't get is this, very simply. Let me, let me tell you why I have a problem with the Nexus. It is like Disneyland. It's like you're the father of eight going to Disneyland, and yeah, you're having the time of your life, but in the back of your mind, you're always remembering how much this trip's costing you. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's oh, always like that nagging trouble where you just can't quite be happy. Mm-hmm. Well, here's my problem with this. How the hell did they get out of the Nexus because they choose to, but they can't go back if they choose to go back? What the hell was that? You can go out of the Nexus on a whim, but you can't go in the Nexus on a whim? That doesn't make any sense. When you're in the Nexus, you are beyond space and time. You may rematerialize anywhere you want, but there's only one door into the Nexus, and that's the ribbon. Okay, how did she get Picard to the first day that Shatner arrived in the Nexus? But to have Picard interact with Kirk, he's interacting in Kirk's dream or Kirk's vision of reality in the Nexus. How can Picard invade Kirk's reality? I'm just glad that we're identifying the fact that Kirk does not live in a reality with everyone else. Because that's very clear here. (laughs) 
The way he's sauntering around his ranch, the way they're making eggs together, you could just sense <laughs> Picard's disdain through all of it. Like, I can't believe I have to put up with this to be in a movie. It wasn't Kirk condescending. He's like, go get me my nutmeg. <laughs> <laughs> You know, it's just a total difference. I mean, Kirk is there making eggs. Somebody walks into his house. He's like, yeah, come so- on in, get me some freaking nutmeg. And Picard, <laughs> he's so stunned. He's like, okay. okay. Yeah. I just don't understand the whole nexus and how it works. And the way they explain it, that's fine, well, and good. But it doesn't seem like the rules really apply to anything. Let me explain it to you in minute detail, Okay. The ion technobabble technobabble plasma technobabble in the nexus technobabble blah blah technobabble blah. You get it now? Yeah. I think they could have done this exact same plot had they used Q. Mm. And they missed the opportunity. That would have been great. I liked Q. Yeah, and John Q. Delancey writes his name, right? John Delancey, whatever his name yeah, is. Yeah, his name's not John Q. Delancey, although he might as well be. <laughs> you know, TV's Q. Like John Q. Public? <laughs> Look, I'm not the Star Trek fan. I'm the casual fan. I've seen a couple of Q mind screw episodes, and I thought they were fun and the way he plays around with Picard. Wouldn't it have been great to have Q set this whole thing up so Picard and Kirk see each other and do whatever? What is wrong with that plot? I love it, Brock. Write it. Go. Do it. Here's the and three we'll things wrong with it. All right. There's three things wrong with it, not yes. just one? Not one, okay. three. Number one. Q was the plot of the two-part series finale. So they'd just done a Q movie. Two, Q is a person with whom he can be reasoned and over the course of seven years had become pretty friendly. So when you have a ribbon, you know, you have no motivation. It's an act of nature to have Q there they, they would have just ended up talking him out of it somehow, which is what they always did with Q. And that wouldn't have been as exciting. And three, I only had two, I'm sorry. <laughs> Look, I understand that Q is Mitzelplik. I get that, okay? But you could have had the Malcolm McDowell character still in there if you needed it, I guess, but it would have been so much cleaner to even eliminate that character and just have Q doing it. That's all I'm saying, because the rules of the Nexus, regardless of all the technobabble stuff, your excuses, doesn't that feel like it really weighs down the movie when it doesn't make really much a lot of sense and therefore, regardless of the reason the two of them get together for this scene at the end, doesn't it seem to you or it seems to me that the Nexus is a convenient thing just to bring them together as opposed to a well-thought-out thing? I completely agree. I, I guess I misunderstood your statement because you were asking me to explain how it works. I can't. If you want me to explain or agree it's a convenient plot device put there for that sake, yes, and it's actually far more convenient than Q because you would have had to manipulate Q in some way for this. Plus, again, he'd just been used. But it's a convenient plot point. You need to get these two together somehow, and this is how they chose to do it. They'd already done the stuck-in-a-transporter thing for Scotty. So this was what they had, and they went with it. Does it work? Absolutely not. First of all, if you're in the Nexus and you're really happy, then why do you have this nagging problem? Second of all, if you're in the Nexus and you think it's reality, how come you walk into your bedroom and you're in a horse stable? I mean, unless that's what you're into. And how did Picard follow him in there? It doesn't make any sense that Picard can jump in Kirk's brain like that. It doesn't make any sense. Well, no. Here's how I interpret it. Is Kirk was in a place. And that place was formed to his vision. And Picard physically went there. I can travel to your corner of the Nexus and see your reality? Yes. But you actually don't exist. It's all kind of mental, spiritual weirdness. Yeah, he can go anywhere and do anything. I guess he could have gone and seen Soren because I guess Soren was still there because Goldberg was still there. Right. I mean, yeah, it's Superman flying the Earth backwards. You open up doors that you can't <laughs> explain. The more they try to explain it, the worse it gets. Yes, it mm. does. Yeah, you know what? I like the idea that there was this magical place where your fantasies could become real. And, of course, it's a cliche that you would rather have the painful reality than the artificial utopia. That said, the moment that they try to sell us that Picard won't buy into it is false, dramatically. He is there with his family. They're about to eat dinner. It's like this cheery Cratchit house. I kept getting uh, a Christmas carol in my head. Like he was visiting himself in another life. That is Patrick Stewart's like most famous other role is his one man Christmas Carol show. 
Right. Uh, maybe X-Men, but up to this point it was. And I just felt like we really needed to understand why he could never be happy there, and the script does not provide that moment. It Actually, the script defies that moment because he's so upset about his nephew and brother dying earlier in the movie. Exactly. So the fact that he has a chance to spend time with them for eternity, the whole scene with Troy's single scene, um, Captain, what's wrong? Oh, she's a real brilliant empath. Everyone can see something's <laughs> wrong with him. So, wow, I'm glad she's on board. Thanks a lot, Troy. You want to know what's really funny there. is two things. First of all, I could see if he could go anywhere, anytime, why not hang out with the family for a few hundred years and, <laughs> and then, then go yeah. back and save everyone? Exactly. But the exactly. second thing is, there was actually an episode of The Next Generation where he did that, where oh, he lands on a uh, planet and grows really old and finds out it's all in his mind and it had only been a day or something like that. And he has grown children. and So they've used this whole I have an artificial family thing before? Yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. So Kirk and Picard get together in the Nexus for whatever techno babble blah, blah, and they come out right before Soren blows up the sun. Now, can we just agree that it's stupid he comes out at that moment and we we know why and we're not going to talk about it. Well, we talked about it in Trek 4. Yeah, it's like right. if you have the ability to travel back in time, you don't travel back to the nail-biting few seconds before the event you're trying to stop is occurring. Unless you're wanting to wow the audience at home, which is obviously why they do it. But I also feel this entire situation, this is Kirk has died once. We're going to kill him again. And I feel it's an unfulfilling death. And my reason for being this, I I really thought about this. He's saving the lives of 300 million people. But 300 million people I've never seen don't matter to me as much as one person I have seen. His sacrifice, even though he's saving more people overall, feels nowhere near as noble and important as Spock's in part two. Why couldn't he die saving Picard's life? That would have been good. I don't believe that Shatner's ego would have allowed that. He wouldn't die for Picard. Picard should die for him. Here's what's really funny is this was the second ending shot after the first one fell flat with test audiences where Malcolm McDowell shot Kirk in the back and killed him. The reason McDowell took this job was to be on a Trivial Pursuit card saying who's the man who killed Kirk. Remind me why Kirk dies anyway. He's like on a bridge and it collapses under his weight. Something like that? It's a steel bridge. What? Well, it, it was collapsed? already broken apart. I mean, it had gotten caught in an explosion. So it was it was Ooh. rickety at least. Okay. Now, I do have to say, though, this is the one performance out of all six movies that I think Shatner did horrible. He just did so horrible here. And I really <laughs> feel like he's spitting out that line, which they make him say so many times when he calls Picard the captain of the Enterprise. Shatner has said in interviews it's the hardest line he's ever had to deliver, and you see that. He Mm. hates saying that line, and it doesn't need to be said. You do not have to show me Shatner passing the torch. I do not need that. I know the torch is passed. Once would have been fine. He says it like two or three times, and it's just every time he says it, the delivery is so bad. Once Kirk comes into this movie at the end, everything falls apart, including the bridge, because I don't even understand who this woman is. He he says 11 years ago he had met Antonia and nine years earlier he'd returned to Starfleet. When did he leave Starfleet and when did he return? It, it all doesn't fit with the backstory that we've seen of the past six movies. It all falls apart. It's lazy. It's sloppy. And Shatner brings nothing to the table but his name. I just want to say for the record here, I have no ill will for William Shatner. I enjoy watching the guy perform. I enjoyed him in this movie. I will admit it is not the best Captain Kirk movie. But I had no problem with him being in this movie because my problems with this movie are not about Kirk being in the movie. I completely acknowledge why Kirk is in this movie. By the time it gets to Kirk at the end, this is what we're here for, you know? And this is what the movie was made for. And Can I tell you where it falls apart, though? Okay. By the time Kirk showed up, I'd forgotten he was in the movie. Both times I watched this, I'm like, oh, crap. Kirk, he was in this movie, wasn't he? <laughs> and Because yeah. I was in a Next Generation adventure and I was going with it and it took us all the way to the climax of the movie before they brought him back. Right. And I'd forgotten it was unnecessary. And I don't have a problem with Kirk being in this movie. You said you don't have a problem with Kirk being in this movie. I don't either. I have a problem with Shatner being in this movie because Shatner brings his D game. Yes, he is terrible. You say this is his time that he got bad. He's been getting bad since five. 
Five was bad. Six was worse. And this one takes the cake. Six has his moments of goodness. Yeah, I think he I really pulls it off. This, he's not even trying. I really think he tried in five. He just didn't have a good director. But in, <laughs> in this movie, I think, again, maybe he didn't have a good director. Perhaps he had a director who was cowering before the almighty Shatner. It's- I agree with you. It feels like in order to even get this concept off the ground, they had to bend over backwards to please Shatner in any way he saw fit. And by doing so, they really just sucked the tension out of the whole confrontation. It just feels so self-serving. And as someone that, I mean, I never was huge on Kirk. He's never been one of my favorite characters. But I liked him in 2 and 4, and he had his moments. They really turned me against this character. There's only so much the guy can do. Maybe his performance is underwhelming because of what they gave him. What his role was in this movie was so underwritten that he had nothing to work with. You know what I thought was interesting is that they already have a Shatner on this Next Generation show. It's Riker. He's the guy that was given all of the Kirkisms for this new thing. And I felt like they got the balance right. It's like, yeah, the captain should be commanding and stern and tough-minded, and his second-in-command should be the one that's beaming down and the, the macho posturing and all of this. In this movie, he is totally emasculated. Where is Riker in this movie? Well, he's crashing the ship. Yes. Yeah. Well, let me just say, though, there are scenes. Again, I watched the HBO version, so I didn't break out my DVD for this. I've never seen the cut scenes. The movie opens with Shatner skydiving from orbit to the planet. The entire opening credits, instead of a floating <laughs> bottle, was going to be Shatner falling to Earth. Really? And yeah, Brock, and- you say the writers wanted that? That Chatner was just doing what he was told? Come now. Yeah, don't tell me that if Nimoy tried to strong arm the writers, the writers said no, and Nimoy said, I'm walking. That if Shatner said the same thing, the writers wouldn't give Shatner what Shatner wanted. And that is because Shatner was the selling point of the movie. He was a gimmick. They could have done a Next Generation movie, but they could not have done this generation's concept without Shatner. They couldn't have stuck, as much as I would have loved it, Sulu in this part and had it been Picard and Sulu as captains fighting Malcolm McDowell. This had to be Shatner in order for the nostalgia thing that was laid all over this to work. And so they did a lot to get him and to please him. I understand. So I'm relieved that they've passed the torch, that we are through the old generation, and I'm not trying to disrespect them. They had their moment. They had some good adventures. And I'm really excited about getting on with this and seeing what a fully next generation movie is going to be. I agree. You know, when we started this, I said, what are they going to give me to make this a movie? And they, I think they brought it, but I think the next movie brings it even more. We've got a new ship. We've got the best enemy, and it isn't going to have what I felt was the weakest part of this movie which was kirk i think that's a great place to end the show so i ask stewart arnie do you recommend star trek generations stewart uh, you know, it wasn't that bad. It was watchable. It's I kind of would take it as a uh, middle-of-the-road TV episode. If you had to watch every episode of the TV show or watch it whenever it comes on, you could feel as ambivalently involved with this one. I can't say it's a very good movie, but I can't say I disliked it either. It was very – it was almost the – definition of mediocre so depending on how you feel let me put it this way i like the new cast enough to give it the mildest of recommendations Hmm. arnie i don't know if this has come through on this podcast but i found myself enjoying this movie when i was watching it i actually enjoyed the scenes on the first b because of their humor with the press corps and the chair line and everything and then i got into the next generation scenes more than i thought i would i really found myself enjoying the characters and i think a lot of that has to do with the performances patrick stewart i find to be a phenomenal actor and so expressive of face and so capable of expressing so many emotions believably and brent spiner you know for all the presumed ego i think he has does a great job of bringing some humor to the entire movie i even think whoopi goldberg does a good job the movie does fall apart at the end be it the logic of the nexus the performance of shatner the ending is very unsatisfying but up until the end it was an enjoyable romp and i had fun watching it and so i'm actually going to give this a pretty strong recommendation for a good time but it's not a perfect movie 
I was nitpicking this movie the entire podcast, and I completely admit that, because as I was watching this movie, these questions kept on popping up. But I think you both hit on something. I had a good time watching it, too, and I do like these characters. So I did feel like it was just an episode of the TV show, just a little bit bigger. So I guess I give a mild one, too, Stuart. I think I'm giving a, yeah, you can watch it. It's not that bad. There's enough here to enjoy it. I liked other Trek movies more. Not as weak a recommendation as I gave four. A little stronger than that, but uh, a weak recommendation to this one, too. And if I can get a bit meta for a moment and talk to our listeners, I think the reason that we got so bogged down in these minor points is because the movie does. There's so much to this movie. It's a dense movie. There's a lot happening. It's moving by very fast, and some of it isn't very well explained. I don't feel Data's emotion trip is well explained because, you know, at one point, it's fused to him. At the end, I choose not to remove it. I I didn't think you had that choice anymore. And the nexus and so many things are kind of what but if you just don't get to the level of detail we did in this podcast it's enjoyable but it raises so many points and they're important points because it's the first next generation movie the last kirk movie there's so much here to talk about and we did but i think that our end summaries really express our feelings about the movie better than anything we'd said before so if you like this podcast, please download our other Star Trek and other non-Star Trek podcasts, all of which are available at www.nowplayingpodcast.com. And if you have any thoughts or ideas about our podcast, please send us an email at show at nowplayingpodcast.com. I want to thank Stuart and Arnie for joining me today. Thanks, guys. You bet. And we'll join you all back when we make some first contact. Live long and prosper. Space. The final frontier. These are the continuing voyages of the starship Enterprise. Her ongoing mission to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life forms and new civilizations, to boldly go where no man has gone. Thank you for joining us for this installment of Now Playing's Look Back at all of the films in the Star Trek series. Be sure to come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com every Friday from now until the release of the new movie May 8th for a new installment in our Trek retrospective. Star Trek and all the Star Trek universe contains is copyright and trademark Paramount Pictures, all rights reserved. Now Playing is not affiliated with Paramount Pictures. Gentlemen, your work today has been outstanding. I tend to recommend you all for promotion in whatever fleet we end up serving. Now Playing is a production of Inganza Media Incorporated, copyright 2009, all rights reserved. Something about when she would watch the show, she was the only person that would, the only show that showed black people in space. Is that what the line is, Arnie? Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, why don't you just let me do this? <laughs> this is why. <laughs> wow. Ouch. Denied. Ooh. Get out of my way. Well, why don't I ask my life-size cutout here of William Shatner what he thinks? (laughs) (laughs) He says you can go ahead, Arnie. Go ahead. Well, Bill says go ahead. And we'll join you all back when we make some first contact. Live long and prosper. Dude. (laughs) 